When I was a kid living in Papua New Guinea, my parents worked in a very remote tribal location tucked into the rugged mountainous region of the Highlands province. In those days, the indigenous people rarely traveled beyond their limited locality because money was scarce. Hiking was the main means of transportation and neighboring clans were often hostile. In the rare chance that anyone actually did have the opportunity to travel to the nearest town, they were enthralled with what they saw. Stores, trucks, large markets, paved roads, advertisements, all kinds of things. They were all a novelty to them. Most of the people had very little, if any, exposure to such things. Their lifestyle was very primitive, consisting of small windowless homes constructed from materials grown in the jungle and sweet potato gardens grown into the deep, sown into the steep clay hillsides. On one occasion, a villager was presented with the opportunity of making the trek out of his familiar surroundings in the bush, and he was able to head towards civilization. Upon entering a local food mart, he was amazed by the canned food options. Being illiterate, he was unable to read the descriptions, but seeing that each can presented a picture of the contents, he was undisturbed by his limitation. As he browsed, he eventually selected a large can with a beautiful photo of a roasted chicken. Delighted with his find, he used his meager funds to purchase this delicacy. With eager anticipation, he pulled back the metal lid only to discover that the contents of his can contained a firm, white, creamy substance. His roasted chicken dinner was, in fact, a can of Crisco shortening. What a disappointment. What a tragic, unmet expectation. So, yeah, where am I going? You probably already know. Sadly, this is the way marriage is often portrayed in our culture. Like this man who was sold a large can of shortening, the world also sells a beautiful portrait of marriage. With eager anticipation, brides don white, getting, wedding, <laughs> can't talk, white wedding gowns, head to the altar, say their vows, and leave for the honeymoon. At some point during or after the honeymoon, they discover that the portrait of marriage they were sold is very different from their daily experience. Instead of getting a roasted chicken for dinner, they realize they got a can of shortening. Now keep in mind that shortening has its good uses, right? If you want to make a pie crust or pastries, you need shortening. But if you are looking for a chicken dinner, you will be disappointed. The same is true in marriage. If we, excuse me, we need to know what its true purpose is because if we are seeking to get something that it wasn't intended for, we will be very disappointed. Satan hates marriage because it was created by God and it was designed by God to be a picture of Christ in the church. Satan uses his influence in the world to counterfeit God's design and purpose for marriage so that we will pursue it improperly and function in it sinfully. Satan wants us to be disillusioned and disappointed with our marriages so that we will distort and destroy God's intended purpose for it. If we have been, as we all here have been, in a great Bible teaching church for any length of time, 
We know marriage isn't about our own personal desires. If I asked any of you guys about that, you would say, yeah, no, it's not all about me. And of course, you know, we just talked about that a couple weeks ago, right? We know it is ultimately for God's glory. However, in our day-to-day -day living, it can be easy to forget what the purpose of marriage is. As we are exposed to Satan's counterfeit purposes for marriage, promoted by the world, our affections and desires for a biblical marriage can shift to that which is actually self-serving and unbiblical. So I thought I would give you a couple of examples just to help you understand kind of what I mean here. So perhaps you're scrolling Facebook. You see friends whose husbands bring them flowers or take them out for nice dinners. Y'all know, right? We've probably all done it at some point if you've ever been on Facebook. It cracks the door in your thinking to wish your husband would do that for you. While perusing Instagram, your favorite influencer describes the romantic getaway she just experienced with her husband in some exotic location. And what's our thought on that? Exotic location? I've never been to one. For just a moment, it creates a desire to run away from the responsibilities of your life and be carefree. Perhaps your girlfriend, who doesn't have kids yet, still has the freedom to spontaneous plan outings, spontaneously plan outings and adventures with her husband like you used to do. As you compare your life to hers, seeds of discontentment begin to grow in your heart. Or perhaps in an effort to relax, you turn on a romantic chick flick and then find yourself wishing your marriage was a little more like the couple in the movie. He's so attentive, so sacrificing, so romantic. You wonder why your marriage has to be so boring, why your husband has to be so distracted, and you momentarily yearn for the days when you were dating and wish things hadn't changed. I could continue to list all kinds of examples, right? And probably some of those don't apply to any of you at all. But the fact is, we're all influenced by worldly thinking, whether we realize it or not. Cultivating a good marriage is a common topic, and it's discussed all over the place within our Christian circles, right? And not just here at our church, but in our Christian society in general. Many books are written on the subject. Many sermons are preached about it. It is contemplated and evaluated in Bible studies, small groups, and is written about in blogs. All of these various arenas of discussion are attempting to provide advice on how to improve, fix, or survive your marriage, depending on where you are. Sometimes it gets to a point where it really is just survival. Each person's presupposition about marriage influences their advice or counsel on what their goals should be for marriage and what they should try to achieve within marriage. So I am quoting, and actually, I will be honest, I had a stack of books like this that I was going through, and so a lot of this is taken from little bits from all different books, trying to not, cover, not miss important things that we need to talk about tonight. So Dave Harvey writes this, everybody views life from a perspective, what some call a worldview. Our worldview is shaped by many things, our culture, our gender, our upbringing, our present situation, etc. The most profound thing that shapes anybody's worldview is their understanding of God. 
What a person believes about God determines what he or she thinks about how we got here, what our ultimate meaning is, and what happens after we die. So essentially, our worldview, our perspective on life, is determined by our perspective on God. What you truly believe about God and what it means to live for God is your theology. And I know I mentioned something very similar to that a couple of weeks ago when we first met. He goes on to say, How a husband and wife build their marriage day by day and year by year is fundamentally shaped by their theology. It governs how you think, what you say, and how you act. Your theology governs your entire life, and it determines how you live in your marriage. So, if our theology is wrong, especially if it's wrong regarding marriage, then how we function within our marriage will likewise be wrong. So, I'm not sure if I'm going to say their last name right. Bear, Gary and Betsy Rakusi, is, is that right? Okay, Lisa's nodding her head suggests the following faulty assumptions regarding married, marriage. So here's what they say, that people, the ways that people can approach marriage. So the first one, some people believe that they should find someone who completes them, someone with whom they are compatible, a soulmate. This view says, I know my marriage is, is good because I'm happy. You complete me, and I'm satisfied with you. Therefore, our marriage is good. Others say, well, that's selfish. Marriage is not about me. It's about you. It's about my spouse. They determine that their purpose in marriage is to make their spouse happy. They say, if you're happy, then I'm happy. My needs aren't important. I'm here to serve you. Well, you might disagree with both of those and say, marriage is not about you or me, it's about us. We each individually set our desires aside so that we can focus on us, our relationship. Now, we smile, but this is way more true than probably what we realize. And of course, we've already talked about the fact that marriage is about God's glory and it's for him, so you guys already know that. But these are real ways that people view marriage. And the thing is, we have to be careful when we are getting advice from other people, when, when we're seeing things on Facebook, when we're reading blogs, when we're listening to other sermons, whatever it is, because what perspective are they coming from? And if they aren't coming from a biblical perspective, and these things that I just read here, you can make them sound very biblical, my marriage is about serving you. Well, of course, I'm supposed to serve my husband, right? Our marriage is about us because we're supposed to work on it. But if that's where it ends or that's where it starts, then we are sadly mistaken. They respond to, they, okay, so then the Rakusis, they continue and they respond to those ideas by writing this. The truth is all these views have the same fatal limitation. They are centered in man rather than in God. A truly Christian marriage starts with the reality that the institution of marriage does not belong to us. It belongs to God. He designed marriage and his purposes for it are paramount. 
In order to have a correct theology of marriage, we need to begin with Scripture. We need to understand what Scripture defines as the purpose of marriage. So we are going to endeavor to answer the question tonight, why am I married? So like I already said, we need to understand what the purpose of Scripture is even to understand what the purpose of marriage is because you can go to Scripture and find things that support some of those other ideas about loving your husband, serving your husband. But ultimately, we have to keep in mind that our entire lives are for the purpose of glorifying God. That's why we were created. And if we, yes, we serve and love one another, but it's always within the context of our desire to first love and serve God. So A on your outline is to glorify God. So uh, answering the question, why am I married? Well, I am married to glorify God. So in our first lesson, we discussed briefly ways that we sinfully fail to glorify God in our lives. And I read this quote, and I'm reading it again just to remind you. Marriage was not just invented by God. It belongs to God. It actually exists for him more than it exists for you and me and our spouses. Marriage is not first about me or my spouse. Obviously, the man and woman, excuse me, the man and woman are essential, but they are also secondary. God is the most important person in a marriage. Marriage is for our good, but it first is for God's glory. So, in our very first lesson, if you were here for that or if you listened to it, I talked about how we don't glorify God in our marriages. So this time I'm going to turn it, and really I should have done a whole lesson on this, honestly. But anyways, you know, you live and you learn. So tonight I'm just going, we've got one little section here, and we're going to look at how we do glorify God. What is the put on for that? <clears throat> so number one, God is glorified when we bear fruit. And I only have four little verses here. But what I want you to do is I want you to think about these verses and bring glory to God in the context of our marriage. So think about how you apply this truth within marriage. Because, see, this is what we do. There's only a few little portions of Scripture that actually talk about marriage in the Bible. So what we have to do is we go to the whole of Scripture, and from there we figure out how we are to live with our husbands in a marriage. So you're not going to get very far if all you do is just go to Ephesians 5, right? So that's why we take the bigger, broader picture of Scripture and figure out, okay, so what does that mean in my marriage? So John 15, 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So God is glorified when we exemplify the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Of course, we know that, right? This includes... Oh, this... Oh, sorry. I'm reading the wrong line. Seems like I, I seem like I have more trouble in the evenings teaching than I do in the mornings. This includes anytime and anywhere when we do not give into our flesh and instead practice patience, kindness, love, and self-control, etc., God is glorified because his character is being seen through our words and actions and attitudes 
by the power of his spirit that resides in us. So then, okay, let's take that and apply it to marriage. God is glorified when we display the fruit of the spirit in our marriage, both in how we respond to our husbands and in how we as husband and wife interact with each other. When we both practice the fruit of the Spirit toward each other, we demonstrate Christ's likeness and God is glorified. So here's what we have to do with this principles. We go, okay, so God is glorified when I am bearing much fruit. So we can think about that as it pertains to going to church and serving and being nice to people at church. But we need to think about it. What about when I'm at home? God is glorified when I bear much fruit in my relationship, in my responses, in my interactions with my husband. God is glorified and I should be bearing much fruit in my home, in my marriage, regardless, hear this next thing, regardless of how my husband acts. His actions do not determine, should not determine the amount of fruit that I bear in my life. And to be honest, if he's a very difficult husband, you might be bearing more fruit if you're walking with the Lord, being patient, being kind, being loving. So number two, God is glorified when we use our gifts within the church body. So 1 Peter 4, 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. So when we use our spiritual gifts within the church for the good of the body, other people are strengthened and encouraged. This is a benefit to us individually as we are blessed by serving or teaching whatever our gifts, whatever category our gifts fall into, but it is also a blessing to our spouses. So if we reflect back on the excellent wife from Proverbs 31, remember? Well, do you remember that her husband was known in the gates of the city? Do you remember that? Well, why was he known? Now, you remember, this is where the important people sat in the city, the elders and things like that. They sat there. He was known in the gates of the city. Why? Because he had a wife that was excellent, that was serving, that took care of her home, that, that stretched out her hand to the needy, all these things. Now, obviously, she wasn't in the church, but I think we can still take that principle and apply it to us as we serve one another in the church. We reflect on our husbands. How we interact with other people within the church is either a positive or negative influence and reflects either positively or negatively on our husbands. We need to keep that in mind. So number three, God is glorified when unbelievers see Christ's character in us. So Matthew 5, 16 let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father as who is in heaven. And 1 Peter 2.12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. When our lives reflect the character of Christ toward unbelievers, God is glorified. 
Again, this is true both individually and as a married couple. When unbelievers see us loving our husbands, speaking highly of them, respecting them, joyfully serving them, and living within the roles that God has given us by keeping our homes and caring for our children, it is a reflection of the character of Christ in us. God may even use our testimony to draw unbelievers to himself for salvation. And in all of this, what? God is glorified. How we, how we interact within our marriage is a beautiful, should be, a beautiful picture to the world of God's work in our lives. Because if you look at unbelievers, generally speaking, they don't have great marriages unless, of course, they have similar interests. And so they, they join together over their similar shared interests, and that's what keeps them together. But what happens when those interests separate, when they don't still have the same interests any longer? then their relationships tend to drift. Yes, they may, st they may st still be married over many years, but to me it is one of the saddest things to see an old couple that has been married for 45 or 50 years or longer. They're not getting a divorce because that would be just too difficult, but they really don't like each other and they tolerate living together. Our marriages should never be like that. We have a world that is watching, that is looking, that is seeing. And that's one of the reasons, as we'll see in a few minutes, the importance of the fact that we in our marriage represent Christ and the church, that relationship. And so how we interact with our husbands is very important. So number four, in everything we do within our marriages, we should aim to glorify God. So 1 Corinthians 10.31, of course, you knew we couldn't forget this one, right? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And everything we do, including our marriages, we should never lose sight of the fact that it is our duty to bring glory to God. That means that when we have a miscommunication with our husbands, we should seek to straighten it out in patience, love, and kindness, self-control. Why? For the glory of God, instead of responding in sinful anger. When he has habits or preferences that we don't like, we need to either overlook it in love for God's glory or discuss it with him for God's glory. When he doesn't do something you thought he should have done or he said he would do something that he didn't do, you need to take your thoughts captive, believing the best of your husband for God's glory. When he responds sinfully towards you, you forgive him for God's glory. When we sin against our husbands, we must repent. Why? For God's glory. Do you see how this works? It's very, very practical. All these little things. But if we aren't mindful of this, if we aren't considering this, if we aren't meditating on the scripture, then when we end up in places in our marriage that we don't like to be in, it doesn't even have to be a big thing. And all these little bitty things, if we forget that our purpose is for the glory of God, we immediately revert to living for ourselves and what we want. And the sharp words come out, the bad attitude, the silent treatment, whatever it is. 
everything we do in our marriage should be for the glory of God. And it doesn't matter how difficult the struggles are that you are facing in that moment. Every marriage goes through ups and downs. And if you haven't had downs yet, you will have a point in your marriage where you will have a down. But you have what you need right now, what I'm telling you, so that when you experience a difficulty, a hardship, tragic sin, whatever it is, you know that you take your thoughts captive and you renew your mind and the truths of Scripture and you keep in mind that everything you do, every thought you think, every word you say is for the glory of God in your marriage. So B, that was very short, but we got to keep moving. B, to reflect the relationship between, so what? why am I married? To reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. And just letting you know here, I am just mentioning this because this is one of the things, but we really aren't going to dig into this because we'll probably talk a lot more about this when we get into the roles. So in Genesis, we are given the account of the first marriage. So Genesis 2, 22 through 25 says this, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we have right there the very first marriage. This is a beautiful explanation of the creation of marriage. Adam was amazed at the lovely gift that God had provided him because remember, he had named all the animals and there was nobody suitable for him. And then God brought him this wonderful wife called woman, Eve is what he ended up calling her. But this depiction of the purpose of marriage was incomplete until the New Testament. So the Rikuchis... I always was trying to figure out, is it Kuchi or Kusi? Um, anyways, they explain this. As significant as marriage was in Eden, the full meaning of marriage was not disclosed until the coming of Christ. When the Apostle Paul teaches about marriage in Ephesians 5, he quotes Genesis 2.24 and then draws back the curtain on this amazing truth. So he's quoting right here. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This revelation between a husband and wife is meant to be a reflection of Christ's relationship with his church. A living parable of this supernatural union between Jesus and his bride. To grasp this staggering truth is both inspiring and sobering. What a privilege! What a responsibility. And so I am just going to read the passage here just because partly this is your memory verse. And it is long. I know that it is long this time, but there was just no way I could make it short. And actually, I um, didn't even make you learn the very last one. So there you go. Ephesians 5, through 27 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So one of my commentators said this, Our Christian homes are to be pictures of Christ's relationship to his church. Each believer is a member of Christ's body, and each believer is to help nourish the body in love. The church is his, capital H, God. The church is his body and his bride. And the Christian home is a divinely ordained illustration of this relationship. This certainly makes marriage a serious matter. Our marriages are to be a reflection of the relationship that Christ has with his church. The two primary characteristics that are mentioned in this passage within the marriage relationship are what? Wives submitting to their husbands as the church submits to Christ and husbands loving their wives as Christ loves his church. So like I said, we are going to address this more in a few weeks, but this is a huge purpose of why God created marriage. And I think it's easy for us to forget that we are to, now think about what I just said, and we won't ruffle too many feathers here yet, but one of those things is how we submit to our husbands. If we fail to do that, we are a very poor reflection of the church, right? Because how is the church supposed to be submitting to Christ in all things? Now, we understand the reason why we have an issue with this is because our husbands are not perfect, and neither are we. So we struggle to want to submit, and they struggle to lead well, and the combination is not always real great. (laughs) But it should cause us to stop and to ponder and to think. And even I will say this, and then I'll move on. We need to encourage our husbands to lead well in whatever way that we can. Because sometimes in our attitudes or in our dominance, domineering, we can tend to pull the rug right out from underneath them and keep them from doing the very thing that we desire for them to do. So we need to keep in mind what our role is. What our purpose is, is to reflect Christ in that relationship or to reflect the church in that relationship. So then moving on, C, we are married to build up the body of Christ together within the local church. And I know Chris has talked about this and I'm really not trying to um, just say what he's already said, but we learn by being reminded, right? Hearing things multiple times. So I couldn't leave this out. It's important. So anyways, Christopher Ashe, in the book that he wrote, Marriage for God, he wrote this. Surprisingly, the key to a good marriage is not to pursue a good marriage, but to pursue the honor of God. And we've already said that. Marriage and family can easily become just a respectable form of selfishness. If we marry mainly to meet our own needs, then our marriages will be just that, good-looking masks for selfishness. We should want marriages that serve God. If they are sexually and 
personally fulfilled, well and good, that's great. But if they do not serve God, no amount of personal fulfillment will make them right. Turn your eyes away from the practical matters of how well you communicate, how good sex is, or how well you care for each other. And then he has in parentheses, all of which are important. So we don't entirely ignore those things, but there's something else we need to focus on more. We need to realign ourselves with the God who made us. Make it your prayer to serve him in his world with all the resources and opportunities that your marriage provides. So I wanted to give you a little bit of an illustration here of what he said as far as, you know, you you can have a good marriage, that's well and good, but if it is not focused around God's glory and serving God within the church, then it isn't reflecting what it should be. So I have some friends who are very sweet and fun friends And from everything I can see, they are happily married. They have been married for close to two decades and still seem to get along great and enjoy each other's company. So what is actually really very remarkable is that they do absolutely everything together. You would think maybe that you would get sick of being together all the time, not them. Together, they have built their own very successful business in which they work side by side. They enjoy the benefits of their labors by playing together just as hard as they work together. On weekends, they plan recreational outings like mountain biking or whitewater rafting, or they host parties at their lovely lakefront home, including water skiing with their boat and swimming in their pool. Each year, they vacation numerous times, traveling to various destinations around the world. They both love, they both together love parenting their teenager and eagerly share that responsibility together. They appear to be the perfect model of marriage. Happy, successful, beautiful, and in love after many years. So there is only one problem. Their marriage is not being built within the fellowship of the church. Yes, they do attend church, but they aren't cultivating their marriage within the church. As Christopher Ashe said that I already read, if they are sexually and personally fulfilled, well and good. But if they do not serve God, no no amount of personal fulfillment will make them right. My friends get along great because they have the same goals and the same desires, but these things are only temporal. A God-honoring marriage must be built on the eternal word of God within the eternal church of God. And I cannot state the importance of that enough. And the reason why I say that is because teaching on the church, now we get taught here, but in any other Christian circle that I have been in my whole life before I came here, I did not get good teaching on the value and purpose of the local church. And if we individually are going to thrive, we need to be in the church. And I don't mean when I say be, attending church on Sunday and going to a Bible study. We get in to the church and we work in the church and we serve one another and we minister to one another and we do that individually. But we need to seek to do that as a married couple as well. We, we get in the trenches with people. 
This is where we should spend the majority of our time and energy and love pouring it out because this is eternal. One day we will all stand before God, but one thing or a few things that won't be there, there will be no football. They will, there will be no whatever other sport that we all spend our time doing. There will be no stores to go shopping at the way we might like to shop. There will not be Facebook. So many things that we spend useless time on when we could be investing our lives in the church. Now, does it get messy sometimes? Yeah, it does. Do we offend one another? Yeah. Do we sin against one another? Yes. But then what do we do? We repent, we forgive, and we continue to pour out love. And that needs to be what our goal is in our marriages together, loving the body. So what is it to have a great marriage if that marriage isn't being built within the church? If our marriages are designed by God to bring glory to him, then they must be a part of building what he loves and what his son gave his life to redeem. The church, the local body of believers, that's always what I mean when I'm saying the church, should be vastly important to us because it was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is nothing else in this world that was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ except for all the souls that we see in this local church body. That's why it should be important to us. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, that you were not, I think I read that wrong, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Growing in your marriage within a healthy, scripturally based, God-honoring church is vital to the success of your marriage because biblical teaching within the church will help to inform and transform your what? What did we mention earlier? Your theology. If you neglect to immerse yourself and your marriage within the church, you will not think rightly and biblically about the purpose of your marriage, and you will waste the time that God has given you to pour into what God loves and what Christ laid his life down for. So the Rakusis again, provide three reasons why growing in your marriage within the church is important. And so I just thought I would include them in there on your outline there. So these three things are not from me. They're from them. So number one, the church is where men and women exchange worldly independence for biblical humility. 1 Peter 3, 8, and 9 says this, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Most couples in our society have grown up breathing the cultural air of a husband's independence and a wife's feminism. 
A couple who commits to a local church begins to put to death proud and dangerous independence. As they press forward, seeking to be fully known, to walk in the light and to confess temptations, struggles, and sin, they begin to take on humility and servanthood. And they begin to get the help we all need, but are often too proud to ask for. So then number two, the church is a place where marriages are fed and supported with the truth. So you remember from 1 Timothy 3.15, the Apostle Paul refers to the church as the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. Only in the context of the church will couples receive truth regarding marriage in the form of teaching, application, and community. Even though we live in a time where much is available online and in the form of books and conferences, these things can never take the place of a solid Bible-based church that teaches and trains married couples from the Word of God. We need to be in the church. This, I know I'm preaching to the choir. This is why you guys are all here, right? Because you receive teaching from the Word of God that is truth. And if you aren't in the church hearing those things, how do you know? And this is why we look for a good biblical church. And I know for a lot of you that have moved from out of the area, you moved because you were listening to sermons and you were checking out online, what is this church like? So that you would know whether or not this is a place where you can receive good biblical teaching for things like your marriage. Number three, the church is the place where marriages are helped in seasons of need. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, and then verse 14 says this, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. There are times within every marriage that couples need more specific help and guidance for challenges they face within their marriages and families. These challenges can come in a variety of forms, such as parenting children, loss of a loved one, difficult job change, financial hardships, etc., etc. If a couple can get biblical guidance on the front end of those challenges, it can often prevent further difficulties in the future that really can, can rock the marriage boat badly. And that's another reason why being a part of the church is so important because it can head off the disasters that we might find ourselves in later down the road. So we hear the teaching. And when we struggle and wrestle, Craig and I have gone and sat and gotten counsel from Chris before for various different things. We can't be too proud to ask for help because we are all sinful people. We all are in need of counsel, of direction, of guidance. And sometimes depending on whatever the direction or whatever the situation is that we're facing, whether it be things that are pressing in upon our marriage or things that are actually within the marriage themselves, sometimes when we're so close to the situation, we can't think clearly. We can't decipher what is right, what, are, what is wrong, and what are my motives in the middle of all of this. 
And so we need the church, we need the counsel, we need the teaching, we need the instruction to help us. So then we're moving on now. So the last one is D, to be conformed. Why am I married? To be conformed to the image of Christ. So Paul Tripp wrote this in his book, What Did You Expect? He says, we are kingdom-oriented people. We always live in the service of one of two kingdoms. We either live in the service of the small personal happiness agenda of the kingdom of self, or we live in the service of the huge origin to destiny agenda of the kingdom of God. When we live for the kingdom of self, our decisions, thoughts, plans, actions, and words are directed by personal desire. When the war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self, which rages in all our hearts, is not being won by the Spirit, then we enter marriage driven by little kingdom purposes. The problem is that our spouse does the same thing. So it will be just a matter of time before the carnage begins as our little kingdoms of one collide. It is only when husband and wife each live in a purposeful and joyful allegiance to the plans, purpose, and Lord of the kingdom of God that their marriage can really be a place of unity, understanding, and love. So in the same way that Jesus lived for the eternal kingdom of his heavenly Father well on earth, we must also live for God's kingdom. Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also, to, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. We are to more and more look like Christ. And when Christ lived on earth, what was he living for? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He wasn't distracted by all the temporal things. He knew what his purpose was. He knew what he was about. And the same desires that Christ had are the desires that we should have and reflect in our lives as well. As we follow the example of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, because we can't follow the example of Christ apart from the Holy Spirit that works within us, by seeking his heavenly kingdom first, the more we will be conformed to his image God uses the institution of marriage to provide opportunities for us to become more and more conformed into the image of his son. Is that not true? Marriage is one of the primary tools that God uses to give us opportunities to lay down our will and our desires. Yes, to serve our husbands, but there's a greater goal. Remember, the greater goal is the glory of God. And sometimes I think we do get confused because especially when we're wrestling with our husband for whatever reason, we feel like to serve him in that moment or to give him his own way or whatever it is, to be patient, to be kind, to be self-controlled in that moment, maybe it just is to hold our tongue in that moment. We feel like he doesn't deserve this. So I should be able to do what I want and say what I want. But he's not the end all. God's glory is at stake. So you best not be impatient. 
And you best be self-controlled. And you best serve him well. And you best hold your tongue, even if he doesn't deserve it in that moment. Because you do it for the sake of God's glory. And he is so privileged to be on the receiving end of that, right? But, okay, now just turn that around and look at yourself. What about when he extends grace to you when you don't deserve it? It works both ways, right? And he does that to the glory of God when I don't deserve it. And that should grieve me that I would keep sinning. It should grieve me that I have a hardened heart. And we were talking on Friday morning about mourning over our sin. That should cause us to mourn over our sin. So Martha Peace wrote this in The Excellent Wife. The goal of the Christian husband and wife in their marriage is to have a oneness that is characterized by a loving, spiritual, and physical bond that glorifies God and thereby enhances personal spiritual growth. Oneness and spiritual growth are achieved as each partner helps the other become as much like the Lord Jesus Christ as possible. This spiritual growth and oneness in marriage does not happen by chance. It happens in direct proportion to how diligent a couple is in pursuing it. You will not be a godly wife if you don't work at it. If you don't choose to lay down your will for the will of the Father, if you don't choose to live to the glory of God when it's hard, when you don't feel like it, it is our responsibility within our marriages to seek to be conformed to the character of Christ. And so what I gave you on the back of your outline is a chart actually taken from Martha Peace's book, The Excellent Wife. And um, if you want to just look at it, she, she has throughout that book, if you've never read that book, I would highly recommend it. She has so many practical uh, ways to just work through how you think and how you interact within your marriage. And this is just one of her little tools that she had. But she says, ways God helps us become more like Christ. So then she has her little column there of testing or pressure. Then she has the references that you can look up later. And then she has potential character qualities. So what are the character qualities that could be formed in your life through the testing and pressure that you experience? So the first one there, getting along with your husband. So I'm going to skip over the, the verses. So testing or pressure. I mean, sometimes it's just testing to get along with our husband, just if we're really honest, right? Because we're sinful. Even if they do nothing wrong, it can be testing for us because we are sinful. So what are the potential character qualities? Humility, forbearance, love, diligence, patience, or living in harmony. So I'm not going to take the time to go through all of this, but I would encourage you, take it even just if you have a quiet time in the morning, just take it and review it quickly because it can be really helpful just, just to acknowledge in your mind, okay, so when I am tested, God does have a plan to help me build 
Christ-like character in my life through whatever that testing is. So you can keep this or whatever. I guess it's on the back side. But, but I do think it would be helpful to even to refer back to it. Look up the passages of Scripture. See what they are. So as we close... You and I will never understand our marriages and never be satisfied with them until we understand that God is the one who determines the purpose for our marriages. If we fall prey to the counterfeit influences of the world, we will be disappointed when our marriages don't turn out the way we planned. Just like the man who got a can of shortening instead of chicken, right? The reality is that marriage has been designed by God for His glory and for our good. And our good always involves spiritual growth and conformity to the character of Christ. This isn't always the easiest path because it requires a war with our flesh. Remember, we talked about that. But it is the one with the most eternal gain and the greatest long-term blessing if we are willing to engage in that. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have given us guidance and direction to know how we should be striving to live within our marriages. Father, I pray that we would take some of these things to heart and that we would consider, even as we go home tonight and interact with our husbands, even tonight, that we would evaluate our hearts and consider Am I living with my husband to your glory? Am I striving to give God glory in everything that I do? Father, I pray that we would not separate ourselves from the truths of your word, which can be so easy to do at times, and we lose the application because it just becomes knowledge. Father, help us to engage with these truths, to work out our salvation with these truths, that we would be willing to engage in the battle, and that, Father, as we wrestle against our sin, that you would strengthen us by the power of your Spirit, that you would give us victories so that we can see that you are at work in our hearts and in our lives to conform us to the beautiful image of your Son. Father, I pray that as we go to our small groups, that our discussion would be profitable, that you would continue to help us to get to know one another, that we would be able to, to build relationships, and that it would uh, give us opportunities to foster close relationships where we can ask for help in the hard times, where we can be honest. Lord, I thank you for providing this for us. In your name we pray. Amen. So real quick before you guys get up, I didn't, I don't think I did this at the beginning of the study the first week that we met, and I know that if you were here last week or last year, this is not new, but for any of those that weren't here and maybe weren't at the summer brunch, I just wanted to quickly go over what is the point of our study here. So obviously the point is marriage, right? That seems to be the topic every week. Yes, it is. But within our small groups, um, you younger gals will notice there's some older gals in your group, and the older gals will notice there's younger gals. 
And what we are really trying to accomplish is building relationships in the attitude of Titus 2 so that older women are reaching out to the younger women. Younger women are reaching out to the older women. So this is really to, to give us opportunities to work out the exact things that we've been talking about here today. Remember within the church, what are we to do? Be honest and seek counsel, seek guidance, get help. So that is what we are trying to do specifically at this study. And I know even like on Friday morning, we still have like a wide variety of ages and all of that. But especially for you younger gals, if you see older women in your group, just know they are here for the sole purpose mostly to love you and to get to know you and to build relationships to you and to be a help to you in whatever way that they can. So we're still working on this. None of us are doing it great. We're still trying to figure out how this is all going to work. Um, every new idea always takes some working out the kinks, but that is our goal. So anyways, now you can all go to your small groups with that in mind.